All right, we're back once again. This is How to Pakistan. And as usual, I have with me none other than Musharraf Zaidi. And hello, Musharraf. Assalamu alaikum, Fasi. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Listeners, uh, good to be back. Yes. And today, we'll just jump right into it. It's very fresh. It's something that's happened. Actually, we don't know that much about it as, you know, as we're recording this, but it's the Orlando shootings. It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty devastating. So it's huge. Single largest uh, mass casualty uh, gunman attack. That at least that's what CNN said. Yeah. A, a little bit, a little so, while ago. So again, it's interesting. Like since it was aimed at an LGBT nightclub, I actually expected. You know, usually when something like this happens, you think, please don't let it be a Muslim and. Uh, and I know that positions criticized quite a bit because maybe the key thing should be is that, you know, uh, rather than saying, please don't let it be a Muslim, but you concentrate on the issues that uh, facilitate or create such mindsets. And a lot of people do, and it's difficult to actually overcome. But in this case, I, I was certain that it was a, maybe it was a Christian fundamentalist or somebody off the rocker. And I'm quite surprised, again, to discover that, you know, um, it's actually uh, a Muslim of Pakistani, uh, sorry, uh, Afghani origin. Afghan origin. Afghan origin, yeah. yes, sorry. He's not derived from a carpet. He's yes. uh, derived from people. From people. Um, I, I don't, I'm not that surprised. I, I, you know, I think that these are just, these are new thresholds that, I think the only surprise should be that there hasn't been more of this. The availability of weaponry the availability of ideology, the availability of people on the internet, on social media that are there to help uh, and support this kind of thing. Um, I think, Fassi, we're entering this era of just a lot more than a lot less of this. And unless law enforcement is, you know, law enforcement has to pitch a perfect game Every single time, uh, you know, for for this to like basically in cricket terms, perfect game is a baseball term. But in in cricket terms, law enforcement and national security agencies, intelligence community members all have to have they all have to they have to bowl out the opposition for a score so small that they force follow-ons every single test match. That means every single day. That's how perfect they have to be in order to prevent this kind of thing. So whether it's, you know, I mean, when, you know, again, in terms of rele relevance to Pakistan, I think Safura Gort and, and Sabine Mahmood's uh, assassination, which are both attributed to, you know, these kind of reasonably well-educated English medium young men, uh, and particularly man from, from Karachi. I think that, uh, like, I think we've not come anywhere near the tipping point of, of what, of the quantum of that kind of thing that exists out there and the kind of damage that it's capable of doing anywhere in the world, but particularly in a country like ours where the vulnerability is high and particularly in a country like the United States where weapons laws, gun laws, and, and, you know, the availability of guns and weapons 
is is what it is. It's one of the only countries in the West uh, that has in the industrialized West that has such lax controls on automatic and semi-automatic weapons. And so, from what the reports say, this guy also had a licensed weapon. I'm sure maybe it's not the ones that he used because it seems that he's used automatic weapons. But it's interesting. I mean, when people say, like when you're saying that, you know, law enforcement has to up its game. When I remember that there was sort of like a quantum shift when they realized that self-radicalization was happening, that the narrative was so pop, you know, so powerful that whatever individualized disaffection you had, you connected it to this massive globalized uh, feeling of victimhood of, uh, you know, sort of a neo-imperialism that's going on. And that, I think, when we say that you have to expect much, much more, I'm wondering that that would be one of the key things to look out for, the most difficult to get at. Because, you know, you've got, I mean, Salim Shahzad, even though he came to Pakistan and all that, but he was spurred on his own. I right? think you're talking about Faisal Shahzad. Sorry, Faisal Shahzad. Salim Shahzad was um, the journalist, the, the journalist yeah. who uh, unfortunately was killed. So Faisal Shahzad, then again, um, I forget the names of the two, the ones in California, uh, the husband and wife. Yeah. So, so the key, I mean, I think there's one aspect where you have groups. The, San, Berna, the San Bernardino yeah, couple. Yeah. The shooters, right? Yeah. And uh, yes, I believe her name was Tashfin or something. Tashfin Malik. Yeah. And, and so right now, the, it's, it's just amazing. I think, you know, there's a, almost a caricature when somebody tells you you know, you Muslim societies should be doing more and you should be speaking up against this stuff. But it's become much more, one, it's difficult to do that in some contexts, but also the second is that it's such a self-contained worldview where everything's been reduced and that people individually who are primed in some ways, uh, once they have access to it, you find them, you know, lashing out in this particular one. I, I think, I don't know the case of this uh, Afghan guy, what the story is exactly, but I mean, I found Faisal Shahzad to be a fascinating case. My reading on him was entirely different. My reading was that he got caught up in the American dream. He used the American tools for which you can have conspicuous consumption, which includes mortgages that you might not be able to pay off, you know, cars, whatever. He told a different story back home and, you know, I think he was in a discounting uh, sort of facility in finance, which is not really investment banking. It's just like very retail oriented. And then when that all came crumbling down, I've often thought that, you know, his sort of veering to this sort of uh, ideology was partly based on the fact that he went into the system and couldn't make it. He couldn't cut it. Fuzzy, I think that there's a long-standing tradition of apologia among us yeah. in which we identify all the factors uh, that are non-civilizational, if you will. So, I mean, I think that's perfectly legitimate, what you've said about uh, the Times Square bomber. I think if you look at uh, this fellow Farouk Mutalib, uh, who was the Nigerian um, underwear bomber, the Christmas uh, flight to Detroit. Richard Reed, the idiot bomber. Well, that was the yeah. shoe bomber. Oh, that's the, the shoe bomber. Yeah, right. Farouk Matulu was the Nigerian okay. um, whose father had called the State Department and said, you should yeah, put yeah, him on a terrorist. Yeah. 
you know, and when we read about the radicalization of that young man, I think he was in London at university and, you know, didn't have a lot of friends and sat online a lot and was on the wrong forum, you know, on the wrong fora. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's definitely a loser and loner aspect to a lot of these folks, but the presence of social media has interconnected and metastasized that that sort of you remember that Colorado school bombing what was it called Columbine Columbine yeah Columbine so Columbine was this it's kind of the ultimate poster child case of like these people who became outliers to the mainstream and that caused a certain kind of dehumanization and a radicalization that then enabled them and empowered them to do the kind of monstrous thing that they did I think that that's an easier story to tell than the story of people whose radicalization took place on fora with a title that had something to do with Islam. So I guess what I'm saying is that there is unmistakably an element of complexity with modernity, difficulty with modernity, resistance to modernity that some Muslim narratives run into. And it seems that a lot of this stuff is jet streaming out of that conflict. No, I, I agree with that. I think that's a broader issue. But I mean, when you look at the guys in Belgium, the guys in France, one of the interesting things that I found is the personal irreligiosity of a lot of these guys. Yeah, the 9-11 guys were the going nine, to clubs. Yeah, you know, they were going yeah. to clubs. They were watching, you know, pornographic movies. They had girlfriends. So their personal religiosity, again, in, in Belgium especially, the ghettoization and, and actually the criminalization. So A lot of these are hoodlums. These yeah. are hoodlums, right? Yeah. And, and that doesn't discount the power of that particular narrative. But what it does do is contextualize just a few things uh, that, you know, cause these people to become, um, crazy. You know, inter- crazy. Yes. And, uh, so again, you've just showed me this update that's come up that there's a connection to him pledging allegiance. Actually, the Boston bombers are another great case. Um, and, uh, the same with, you know, the fact that ISIS has also appealed to a sort of, um, perverse machismo it provides a, you know, opportunity for these sort of almost um, psychotic thrill seekers, and but but this doesn't discount, of course, the appeal of this very extremist narrative, and one that you know they try to find links and they create uh, an ambit of uh, Islam around it, very I mean very strongly, um, but I'm I'm just wondering is that when I look at cases like these, and I'm not sure the Van Bomber uh, in Orlando falls into that case, but I think the future of looking at self-radicalization, because ISIS will be pummeled to a certain degree, I don't know whether it can be contained or not, but you're still going to have a free flow of information, and it's also a question of you know what becomes sanctioned under uh, sort of free speech, speech that has the ability to incite, how do we go about it, because I think that's a situation that's also applicable to Pakistan. We're not immune to this, like with Sabine and other people as well. So 
just a few broad issues i think that we will be particularly vulnerable to this for some time to come i i think that it's deeper and more complex and and scarier than just being vulnerable like i like i said at the top i i think given the free availability of these ideas given the number of losers and malcontents out there given the fact that society has become so deeply materialistic and and consumer driven given that there isn't enough for everybody given that spirituality is being is being eaten away at and and made hollow and com- sense of community <laughs> is being built around uh more and more around commercial and corporate interests uh you put all of these things together and i think it should shock us that this isn't happening more so you know one of the things that comes to mind and again i think we need to clarify that we're at a very speculative stage because there's very little information while we were recording this but before while we were talking right you thought that uh you know this guy made a very clear target and you know he was it it got attention and i of course i didn't think that uh, immediately i i thought something else i thought it was another group and one of the things i'm wondering is like in choosing the sort of lg lgbt community whether you know that would why he chose this if he has pledged allegiance to is as the new reports come is that if you're looking to put a target and you know you put a target which is a military installation or you know some of the things that represent the edifices of uh america's power whether it's a financial institution whether it's uh the next generation you know schools things like that but in this particular case i'm just wondering you know if you're going to make a statement what exactly is that statement and how does this apply um look i think that that militaristic homophobia is not new and not unique to radic- to to radical muslims it's 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 a it's a widespread phenomenon and a widespread disease uh it has a long history uh, it has been deeply entrenched and it's only really in the last few years that we've seen uh any kind of sustained pushback to militaristic homophobia i think that it is not a one off because you'll remember that there was an incident in bangladesh recently as well and that's yeah. also linked to uh, the government says they're not isis that they're actually uh, you know daesh Uh, they're not daesh they're they're local radical groups uh bangladesh is going through a quite interesting sort of period in its history anyway i think that the uh overbetressed sort of you know pro india sort of secularism of of sheikh hasina wajid has run into some reality uh in terms of the weaknesses and limitations of south asian muslim the south asian muslim experience whether it's in bangladesh or afghanistan or pakistan or india so i think that you know that that being the case uh i think the reason that i said what i said you know before we before we started recording you know we were talking about this and i said i guess what what i what i was saying was this topic is going to be very difficult to discuss in the muslim world you know with the openness that it'll be discussed with in in the west in the west already a lot of the analysis on the mainstream news media is coming from lgbt sources and it is there's a clear and distinct skew 
uh, as there should be, uh, that this is, you know, that this broadly comes under, you know, an anti-LGBT uh, attack. So I think there are some broader implications about that in, in the sense that, you know, how this is relevant in Pakistan, I think, is in two ways, right? When we see churches attacked, when we see Easter Day attacks, and particularly when, see, when we see Imam Bardas and Shia processions attacked, that those are attacks that are supposed to make more complex the domestic discourse. Like the terrorists in Pakistan or the terrorists that are hiding in Afghanistan but attacking Pakistan, which is very much the case given where Fazlullah and the TTP are headquartered, that those attacks are not just uh, bloodlust, that they're trying to provoke uh, Pakistan collapsing unto itself in terms of the conversations that we have after an attack and our posture and our attitude towards victims of a terrorist attack. And I think with something like this, there is a cleverness to it because it is going to make the conversation about this more complex, more difficult. You know, one of the things that comes to my mind is that, again, whatever this guy's motivations, and it could just be, you know, he's a, you know, radicalized madman and all that. But one of the things is, I'm also wondering is that if he did have a rational approach to this, and, you know, if you did this, say, 15 years ago, you'd be attacking a minority and, you know, I, I'm wondering, like, what outcome it would have. And maybe it's also a commentary of how far these groups have come, like, in uh, getting their rights, LGBT, uh, in the U.S., um, in a way that, you know, he thought he was actually attacking a form of mainstream America or not. And so that's one of my reasons why I'm sort of confused, is, like... Um, you know, why it would be, of course, one, it, uh, one could be is just like just the worldview of, you know, sin that's attached to it or things like that. But one of the interesting things that comes to mind, it's not exactly related to this. I think it was uh, because it had nothing to do with religion, although overtly uh, the guy who did it suggested two years ago there was a, a gay serial killer. I think he had killed three, four people. He was a paramedic or a nurse. He was actually a married man, father of two. And this is in Lahore, I believe. And he'd go out on, you know, these internet sites. And, you know, when he was caught, they asked him, why did you do it? He says, I wanted to finish this, uh, you know, evil from society. But then they asked him, like, but did you have to have sex before you killed him? Because that's the one thing he didn't deny and whatever. And that's obviously like a very internalized form of homophobia. I mean, you can't really read very rational things into it because... He was obviously a serial killer as well. And for whatever reason that he was doing it, whether it was, you know, just finishing any evidence of, you know, what is stigmatized in society. But it was a very interesting case two years ago. Um, one, of course, that I haven't seen any reporting on since. But again, you know, uh, this is like hugely speculative. I'd be really interesting, interested in knowing. Because this guy in uh, Orlando, um, from what's initially come out, is he was also a security guard at some point. And I'm wondering whether, you know, he was actually stationed at one of these clubs or not. And, uh, you know, what else is involved in... Because in, driving, in driving a person to end up taking 50 lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I think we should repeat because it's possible people will hear this several weeks after yeah. we've recorded it. We're recording this on the day of the event. 
a few uh, hours Obama, after. Obama still hasn't spoken yeah. uh, about it. Uh, he's supposed to speak about it whilst we're recording. Yeah. Um, and uh, <clears throat> So, of course, we could be wildly off the mark. And, it you could know, turn out to be, you know, uh, a completely different story. But the current reporting on this is there's a guy named Umar Siddiqui Mateen, uh, who's an American uh, born to Afghan, to an Afghan family, to Afghan parents. Um, that's really all we know. Uh, you, I didn't know this detail about him having worked as a security guard. I did read something about him having been married once and his wife complaining of, you know, of domestic abuse. Um, you know, the Sarnayev brothers, uh, yeah. the, the, the Boston Marathon bombers, uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of the reporting on that, you know, there was a lot of things that came out that then were corrected over the over the hours and days that, that the reporting They actually claimed, continued. I believe, an Indian student who had also been murdered. Exactly. Uh, yeah. uh, there was a picture of an Indian student that yeah. was being that was being flashed and, and, and used. So so it is early days. Um, I do I, I do think that this attack is going to have ramifications on the tone of the presidential. Um, I think that this will remind people of San Bernardino. It will uh, provoke uh, it already has, actually. There's congressmen who've come on Fox News, as, as far as I know, and on BBC, that have said things that are broadly in support of Trump's uh, exclusion So plan. it's proof of concept for Trump, actually. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's um, essentially saying is that the threat is much more widespread. It's at, you know, every avenue of life. And, uh, and, and, and this is, frankly, a different one, right? It's uh, a new direction. If it does turn out to be ISIS-oriented, if it does turn out to be uh, related to some kind of group, um, it is a signal of, a, you know, an expansion. I mean, in a way that at least I hadn't foreseen. Uh, I mean, nightclubs have been, remember the Bali bombing was at a nightclub, yeah. and Tel Aviv nightclubs have yeah. been hit multiple times. Yeah. Uh, the Hamas, Hamas is particularly sort of, uh, but, but that's yeah. But that's my question. It's also a um, it's also a crime of convenience because you've got tightly packed people. You've got few exits. There was don't forget the Paris attack was at a concert. Exactly. Yeah, it was at a concert, yeah. right? So I'm I'm just trying to disaggregate the convenience of the location from what is now like a different kind of location. Like if you're going to target a nightclub, there must have been like a reason for going for. Uh, an LGBT nightclub, and it may just be very obvious. It may be it may pure vile homo homophobia, or it could be convenience. It could Again, be that he lives be. on the next you know block, and yeah. that's what you know the it was one the closest. That, yeah. yeah, and so that's where he ended yeah. up. Um, yeah, it's you know, this is going to really, really complicate life for American Muslims, even more than it than it has done. You know that that even more so than it is complicated currently. But I, I think here is also, um, I mean, I, I also think, uh, you know, as they come to terms with what's just happened, I think American Muslims, however they feel about homosexuality, they have to come out and they have to recognize, you know, the sanctity of life, which I'm sure they do. But it's an opportunity right now because 
the amount that will be read into this, given, say, the doctrinal position for a lot of people, I think uh, it's something where, you know, um, there is an opportunity and a need to engage. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to, yeah, that are going to have difficulty uh, condemning this with the same sort of uh, vocal conviction that uh, they would have had absent the LGBT element of, yeah. of the story. And yeah. I think that that's a broader, uh, it's, it's a broader challenge. And um, actually, if that's what the bomber, uh, the, the killer was thinking, that sort of makes sense slightly from a strategic point of view. Well, no, um, but I, I, so the, as I was saying, I think the targeting of minorities whose inclusion in society is questioned. is questioned. Yes, that is a particularly potent area of work for violent extremists that are looking not just to upend states. Yes, which is part of the agenda for yeah. groups like TTP, groups like Daesh. Now I understand like your articulation better when you explain it better. This is yeah, this makes sense to me. Uh, much. I, more I'm sorry. I should have. Yeah, I guess I should have tried to explain it more clearly earlier. So. It's not just that you're trying to upend the state, it's that you're really trying to exploit the existing limitations, divisions, takallufat uh, right. in a society, right? Yeah. No, no decent Muslim yeah. will be okay with, with anybody's killing. Yeah. But there are many decent Muslims because of the way in which our religious discourse globally yeah. has, t has, has, has developed over the last 100, 150 years, there'll be many Muslims who will be more vocal about, you know, about a terrorist attack when the victims are children at a school yes. than they will be when they are people attending a musical concert, uh, you know, death metal sort of band concert in Paris. Yeah. That, that there, is a, there is a bias uh, institutionalized bias in how we react. By the way, this works across all religious groups, all ethnicities, yeah, yeah, all yeah. nationalities. Americans care more about a terrorist attack in which Americans are killed than an attack in which Americans aren't killed. Yeah. That doesn't make Americans bad people. And and by the same token, the people who are going to be condemning this, uh, you know, differently because of their preconceived notions and biases yeah. and uh, stereotypes about the LGBT community they're not necessarily condoning this, this attack. They're displaying or exhibiting that pre-existing condition that, that and, they and, have, and right? Here, and so yeah. it's not to justify it, it's not, but, I but it's important to try and understand what the terrorists are trying to do. They're trying to, without us having this conversation in which we're trying to delve into the complexity of why reactions will differ, what we're going to start doing is condemning people for their reactions. Yeah. I, I think one of the, and that's, but I think there's an interesting thing because some condemnations um, are problematic also. Because, for example, you know, when you have, say, mass-scale slaughter of this sort, if you predicate it with a caveat, even though I think homosexuality is wrong and whatever, like, I mean, I think one of the things that... Are you saying that's better or...? or? No, I think that's, that's worse. I think what needs to come out, and this is the case where we have a problem with sort of what we find as half-hearted condemnations that exist for other things in Pakistan, right? Sometimes... Well, There's a classical what-aboutery problem. What-aboutery problem, yeah, right? Exactly. And in this particular case also, just say, people are dead, and this is not on, this is cruel, this is, uh, you know, petty, malicious. It's much more than that. You don't have to predicate it 
with your views on whatever. Uh, it's the same thing, like when you say, yeah, uh, if you have, for example, somebody from the West who says, uh, you know, something about APS, but then predicates it with, well, Pakistan's playing around, you know, whatever. There's a time for actually just unilaterally saying, no, this that happened is wrong. And I don't need to add whatever, because I find that the discourse tends to then become about that predication more than what happened. But um, that's the whole purpose of it. The, yes, that's the purpose a, the, of it. At the system level, at the not at the individual, but at the firm level, at the institutional level, yeah. at the organizational level, at the groupthink level, yeah. the whole purpose of the predication or the prevarication or the uh, equi equivocation or, you know, the sort of the conditioning uh -huh. of these condemnations yeah. is to... Thesaurus Snoop Dogg. <laughs> is, is, is to is to actually uh, is to actually problematize our humanity yeah right yeah uh, that there is a basic human function that should kick in as soon as we hear 50 people have been killed yes notwithstanding anything else yeah what there is what aboutery and then there's what aboutery yeah. I, I think that there's some what aboutery is if it if it's explained or articulated at the right time is worth paying attention to simply because you should take away some of the whatabouts. Yeah. Uh, like if, if we're going to solve these problems, some whatabouts should be taken away. Yeah. A lot of Pakistanis uh, don't do it because they're doing it in service of a, of a compl complicated uh, military establishment narrative. Yeah. They do it because they find the argument appealing. Yeah. What about the children killed in drone yeah. strikes? Yeah. You want us to condemn the Orlando bombing uh, uh, of gays or, or the Orlando? What about the children? What about the innocent children of, of, of you know of drone attack? Yeah. Uh, fa you know families that died yeah. in drone attacks. What about Nidam Shah? Yeah. What about so many other? I think we. I think we have to construct narratives that address those whatabouts. Uh, and I think I that, and I think that a lot of time, our that comes back to the self-radicalization thing as well, right? Which is that some of these, I mean, I, I, I think I remember reading about a project which actually sat down to address, you know, what are the main tenets of uh, extremist ideology and why they tend to be appealing. But the counterfactuals are very difficult to go through and they're, you know, because the world is complex. And in the way you're saying is like, how do you address the what about tree and in what time you do? I think all of these, because again, let's say you take a doctrinal position on one thing that, okay, this sort of behavior is not sanctioned or this is immoral or whatever. But then the question comes is that, okay, uh, you can hold that position, but to do something like this is like in no way sanctioned or acceptable or that even those like, you know, people, I mean, quite frankly, in Pakistan, the issue is more about not just different faiths, but it's even different sects, right? And it's even sects that are fairly close together and mildly differentiated in some ways. Although they're... What do you mean by a sect that's close together? Sects. Sectarian. I don't I know if I can okay. pronounce it I, I, correctly. I get it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you, you know what I'm saying. Yes. Like I'm just saying is that I don't think you can get people to agree on every piece, but the key challenge right now is that sort of the violent... Um, because there are a lot of things that you hear sometimes, like So I think that's a brilliant. So I think that's a brilliant point, right, Fasi? Because I think that if we go back to the Qadri situation, right, uh, there are many reasonable, 
very hardcore Brelvis who are who are very clear about rule of law. Yeah. For whom murder is murder. Yeah. And then there are there is a very specific and particular coterie of political actors who claim allegiance to hardcore Brelvi values and who have found for themselves a poster child that they can use to perpetuate whatever political agenda they have. Yeah. I think that it's okay for us to identify and distinguish between those two groups and, and, and a third group of Barelvis who go with what the, you know, what, what the leaders are saying because they're followers and, and, and yeah. they listen to their leaders. But I think, for me, these are all public policy problems. And so what should the state's response be to this? I think that the fact that the state decided that it had to pull the trigger on the execution of, of that man uh, indicated one kind of state effectiveness. It indicated one kind of willingness of the state to do what needed to be done, as unpleasant as it is, because taking life of anyone, including a criminal, uh, is an unpleasant act. Uh, we can debate capital punishment, yeah. but even supporters, no reasonable supporter of capital punishment revels in, in state-sanctioned murder, in, in, in legal murder. So, so, so hear me out. Yeah. What else should have happened concurrent to the decision to hang Mumtaz Qadri? Yeah. Should the state not have invested in a conversation that didn't put pedal to the metal and wasn't about liberal anger and rage and let's get them and let you know, which which we see a lot of in, in, in you know, in the small, uh, brutalized sort of community. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and rightly so in, in many ways, but where was the state's thoughtful sort of second-tier campaign to support the decision to hang him? Where was the engagement with Parilvi thought leaders in which there was a real debate about how uh, being a good Muslim required allegiance to rule of law uh, and that rule of law in this country is constructed within the ambit and the, and the sh- uh, under the shadow of the Quran and the Sunnah and, and God's you know God's grace and and the nur you know that that He's shown through the fanus that was Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi that that where was the serious conversation that should have been state sanctioned? Where were the PTV shows? Where were the seminars? Where were the focus group discussions? Where were the town hall meetings where ministers would go and engage with? Where were the the, the government's own uh, sort of allies on the religious right so wing? I, I want to add something. I agree with this entirely. I think, uh, again, with the Qadri hanging, one of the things about the state was that even though it's gotten some degree of blowback, there's a fear that it'll morph into something larger because now they have a martyr at their hands, the guys who support this particular line of thinking. But what the state did was that, you know, of all the hangings they've done, I mean, I'd argue some of them were not that troublesome because you'd get basically uh, blowback from certain groups, but in terms of the population or in terms of general people like having, uh, you know, sympathies was far reduced. And this one was a gutsy decision, in my opinion. 
But what I agree with, I mean, the thing that did happen was... Well, all guts and no brain is, is exactly. not a state that I'm excited about. So, I agree with you. So now, the problem was also... One of the things that did happen, if you noticed, in the two or three days since that particular... Uh, since that hanging, the media acted fairly responsibly. And the reason was... And this is where I, you know... I think that some of the control on getting a certain kind of guest that stokes a certain kind of emotion that is there to actually, per, you know, add perversity to the discourse. That was prevented in those three days. Unfortunately, it seemed that most of that push came from the ISPR, whose job is not to do that. It was actually to do that from PEMRA's end. And PEMRA is relatively toothless on, it's strong on really, I mean, really useless things, um, you know, banning contraception ads or X, Y, Z or whatever. But, but Fussy, when we say, like, you know, when you and I say that, I think, like, when we say PEMRA's useless because it bans contraceptive ads, I think we're doing ourselves and our listeners and our country a disservice. The, there is a politics and an economy that drives decisions like PEMRA making that decision. And if we don't engage with that and try to understand it and then and then try to figure out how, how to how to grapple I, with it. I, I, like, I think there's a lot of this, you know, what I'm... I, I'll tell you what I'm confused about, right? In that particular case, I disagree because I did not see the demand coming in from that. Like, where was that articulated? When did contraception become... Well, not, everything, not everything happens because there's a dharna, right? Yeah. That there's a lot of uh, preempting... Uh, sig preemptive signaling yeah. that governments that are in power in Pakistan do. Let me give you two quick examples. Yeah. There was the Egyptian... Uh, the Egyptian filmmaker who made that violently uh, offensive, blasphemous film about Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He was an American Coptic, right? An American Egyptian, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, we shouldn't associate him with that group. Just like we don't like yeah, associating yeah. Yeah. terrorists that claim Islam, we shouldn't we shouldn't associate his religious sect with you yeah. know what he did because. Uh, every cop that I know is, is you know, says Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and is very respectful of, of, of the Prophet. So, yeah. But the point being, there was this film and then there was a reaction globally. And do you remember what the government did? The government announced they love the Prophet Day yeah. and shut everything down. Yeah. I was in government at the time. One of the, there was a lot of fallout from that decision. One of the things we did on Love Your Prophet Day, Love the Prophet Day, was we lined up Islamabad with containers because we were worried that the protests were going to get violent and ugly. Those images uh, were then relayed in Moscow, and I don't know if you remember. In Moscow? In Moscow. Just hear me out. Yeah. There was a, Pakistan's been in a big push with Russia for many years now. It's a long-standing strategic uh, pivot. Yeah. And pivoting and reorientation—that one of the one of one of those things is one of one of the elements of this strategic reorientation is a stronger and more robust relationship with Russia. Um, uh, this is extremely important because of a whole host of things that are going on, and these are decade, decade and a half, two decade long processes. Yeah. Putin, uh, President Putin, was supposed to visit Islamabad shortly after this whole thing happened, and these images were directly cited as reasons for why that visit had to be postponed. So Sergei Larionov, I believe, who's the foreign minister, came in instead a few weeks later. And, you know, there was a number of bilateral agreements that were signed, but a big opportunity went missing. 
Now, I remember this because I was in government, and it was the government that decided to announce for political expedience and preemptive signaling to an element of the right wing or the entire right wing or even the mainstream. Pakistan, man, you don't have to be right wing to be offended. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a right winger. I'm offended by blasphemous material. I find it vile and disgusting and it offends me in every way. Uh, and, and so that was in the PPP. In this government, I think that there's been many instances of small olive branches that are constantly being given to to the radical right. And that is that is the vatta satta. It's the quid pro quo. It's the, we gave you this. It's the, sh why Shirani and company are allowed to occupy CII? Why was Shirani made CII chairperson by President Zardari is a very well-known story. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was throwing a bone to Fazlur Rahman of the JUIF to continue to support the government. And Shirani has stayed in place because this government feels that having Fazlur Rahman on board is better than having, having, having him not on board. Now, at a strategic level, if you ask me this question, if I'm in charge and I have the choice of keeping Fazlur Rahman or pushing him away and into the arms and, and, and legs and, and, and a warm embrace of more worse, more radical uh, opinion makers, even if it's just a matter of national discourse, I want Fazlur Rahman on side every time so be because I, he's a yeah. potent... So I, I, I agree with that. That makes sense to me, right? There's going to be give and take at the policy level. I think even in one of our earlier programs when we discussed the federal Shariat court, there was also elements of this exactly there, that it exists to take pressure out of the system for giving smaller concessions instead of having a very successful swell of pressure where you'll have to concede too no, much. No, but, but I'm, not, I'm not endorsing those concessions. No, no, I'm not, saying, not, I'm not, not saying that, that preemptive signaling yeah. is, is, is a good thing. I'm saying that but that's, that's what's of, happening. That's the business of the state as well, right? These things will happen and they'll happen in different contexts under different headers. And but how do, you, how do you stop this? So, so, yeah, but before we come to that, I mean, why I think the whole contraception and the PEMRA issue is such Pemra. an issue, PEMRA, is such an issue, is because, you know, so you're, even in terms of the bones that you're willing to throw, even in terms of the concessions you're willing to give, this is an issue that is... This is not one on which you should be throwing it. Yes, exactly. right? Exactly. This, this is one where, you know, we get, I, I mean, I look at all these uh, market reports that talk about our particular... Um, you know, sort of demography, the youth bulge and all that. And it's almost as if saying youth bulge is destiny, which it isn't, right? You need to have an investment behind it. You get a certain growth parameter. But here, we actually, if we're not, if we're going to have this bunch of young people who are going to grow and want jobs that you can't deliver. I mean, this happened, and already we are stressed. We're water stressed. We've got a number of issues. I just think that, you know, in terms of the, wide variety of things at, you know, I'm, I'm sure the decision is much more difficult than I'm putting it, but I just think this one was the wrong one to do. Already your ads are so, so, um, I forget the word, it's with an E. What's that? Uh, like, you know, you're so watered down, you can't even tell who is this about, you know, you have two kids because, you know, they make less noise or whatever. Like, the central messaging is so constrained. I don't see why 
it had to be curtailed in this fashion. So this is where I think the problem that we're discussing is much larger than that particular ad. There is a lot of policy incoherence in this government in particular. There was policy incoherence in the previous one as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But I think that, I think genuinely and generally, the expectation that everybody had with this government was that it would be better at coherence. Yeah. Uh, because it has a more clear agenda. Its its manifesto is, is quite articulate. It's got the people to deliver that manifesto. Just to give you a small example, I discovered that Pens and pencils and other stationary items have been taxed to the tune of 15 to 17% in this budget that was just announced by Darsa. Concurrently, laptops have had their taxes reduced. Now, the funny because thing is... Because they want to go to a paperless economy. Mm, no, that's not yeah. why, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, why they've done it is that they believe that the pen and uh, pencil manufacturing lobby won't be able to... Bring, fight back, fight back yeah. in the way that maybe the laptop lobby, lobby yeah. could um, and that they can earn whatever it is, maybe 40, 40 million rupees extra in revenue by doing this. 40 million? 40 crore, 400 million, yeah. 400 million okay. rupees. Yeah. But I mean, it's nothing. It's you know? yeah. Now, here's the thing. The decision, this decision is not the first time they've made it. In 2013, they made the exact same announcement, and four days later, five days later, Isagdar came into the parliament and took it back. Yeah. That's one, that's exhibit A. Exhibit B is the Prime Minister's Education Reform Initiative, in which he's going to schools and, you know, he's trying to show that he's pro-education. Yeah. Exhibit C, the Punjab government's massive investment in education, yeah. a big part of their narrative, right? Exhibit, you know, D, the KP government, you know, investing, even the previous KP government, you know, there's there's a continuum of focus on education. You have the Pakistani elite seemingly united on the need for improving education. So you're outcomes. talking about how the ancillaries need to be protected in order for that education push to make sense. I'm saying that any cohere any any professional you know group of people at the Prime Minister's office in a country where Pakistan is would be on top of pa papers and pencils yeah. and would say, you know what, uh, we're pro-education, so we're going to build more schools, get more kids into school, find a way to get uniforms to be cheaper, books to be cheaper, make textbooks free, and oh, by the way, make sure pens and pencils are cheaper. Like, like how is that? Textbooks are free, and it's been a long-standing yeah. thing, textbooks free, textbooks. Yeah. So, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. there's a lot of evidence that suggests that there is no central nervous system to this government and that this government is not unique in this country, most of our governments, our central governments, have not had a functioning central nervous system. And this relates directly, in my view, to the question about why there wasn't the ancillary efforts to support the brave and courageous decision to hang the murderer yeah. of uh, Governor Thassi. Yeah. And this relates to what's gonna happen in the US because the equivalent of the radical right now has the weapons it needs rhetorically to continue to remain on the attack and on the offensive yeah. and create an election story in which this event and San Bernardino and that narrative will, will be potent in terms of vote getters. And the people that are supposed to counter this, like President Obama and like, you know, uh, 
ostensibly Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, will not have the wherewithal to invest in the ancillary material and, and collateral that they need to, to effectively counter it. I agree. I, but I think also underneath all of this is a need for Muslim societies also to recognize sort of, you know, this growing cancer of what I call lax extremism, which is, you know, you find really people who've had all the advantages of life and they've also bought into some of the prejudices, some of the, you know, the sort of uh, proliferation of wajibul qatals and all that. Because whether you, you don't have to invest or agree with something to say that, you know, that human life is, uh, it's sacred and it is in the Quran as well. And I think, again, you know, once these things come up is you also have a time to, because not everyone not every Muslim is responsible for this, but at the same time, I mean, we can't ignore that we have a general issue as well, one that requires addressing, and it's one that, you know, we see in Pakistan, you know, on a normal level. We, we talk about things like this, like, you know... Uh, yeah, but I think yeah. that how many, like, how many times have we had this conversation, Fuzzy? Yeah. Like, honestly... It's not it, an it's, easy it's, thing. It's no, not an easy it's, thing. It's, it's also... Finish your thought. No, no, I said it's... I, I'm not suggesting that it's easy in any way to address but again at this particular time I'm dead sure we're going to have an epidemic of what about tree and uh, you know there's going to be things that I think it's just as bad to blame a whole community for something but it's also pretty bad to use that excuse of you know that generalizing tends to obviate what is a separate and genuine problem that exists side by side. Fuzzy I was sitting down with a, with, a, with a family elder and, you know, he's this very, uh, very educated, very lucid sort of scholar. And, uh, By the way, the great word in Pashto for that is mushir. Mushir. Yeah, I love this word. Okay. It, it's just, it makes, it brings home what an elder. Oh, said bot mushir. Bot mushir, yeah. So, I was talking to him and I, uh, I said, you know, I don't watch Ramadan television programming because I think that it is, uh, I have to find the right words so as not to offend people's sensibilities, but I think it's obtuse and unnecessarily consumption-oriented. Um, it certainly runs counter, uh, not parallel, not perpendicular, completely counter to almost any understanding of the holy month that I have. The, the, the kind of excessive, the dramatics, the, the, the commercialism, the consumption, all of it is just, you know, there's eating competitions right after iftar or sehri. There's, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's a mess. And I said to him, you know, I don't watch it because I know it, that's what's out there and it's not worth watching. And he said, you know, I think that I have a much po more positive view and I think a lot of people see this and they get turned off by it and then they go and explore what real Islam is, what real faith and what real spirituality is and they come out of it much more lucid and much more clear and, and much more spiritually together. And I said, I think that's your experience because you yourself are a lucid and, and spiritual man and so you come across these examples of people who've been on these journeys. And what is the prerequisite for these journeys? And, you know, he said, well, 
the prerequisite for these journeys uh, is that people should have that sensibility. I says, where does it come from? And he's like, what are you driving? And I said, well, Pakistan has in some, in some provinces as much as 78% child malnutrition. Basic cognitive skills, the basic ability to analyze and critically reason, those basic skills are compromised below the age of three. Be before thousands and thousands and thousands of Pakistani children hit the age of three, they have already been stripped of the ability to critically reason and analyze you know, because I, of malnutrition. I'm just going to add one thing is that I've often found this really interesting when you see calendars of Pakistan and one of the things that invariably is indirectly upheld as a totem of uh, beauty and poverty is these kids with these sandy hair. You've seen that, right? Yeah. And, and it, it's there in some of the poorer areas and whatever. And that's actually also uh, a, a symptom of uh, malnutrition. As, yes, I know. Yeah. And, 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 and we've glorified it. We've, we've glorified slum -lord, it. Yeah. We've uh, slumdog millionaired it, right? Yeah. Which, yeah. You know, this poverty yeah. tourism that, yeah. you know, is a habit among those that eat too much and have too much. I think, Fussy, the, the fact of the matter is that we will not somehow miraculously come to a better, uh, to a better place. We, as you identified rightly, our population is... Uh, growing at a, at a pace faster. Uh, our population has grown, uh, maybe not as growing today as fast as it was in the mid-90s, but it has grown faster in the past 25 years than almost any other country of this size. And we're going to skip from being eighth in the world to being fourth in the world over the next two decades. Yeah. Uh, the issue isn't just that there's too many people. Uh, you know, I don't actually, I have some personal beliefs that are probably more attuned with you know, sort of uh, slightly more backward views on population. Uh, it isn't the principal problem, whereas a lot of my friends and, and, you know, colleagues find population to be the principal problem. The bigger problem is what we're doing with that population. We are condemning millions and millions of Pakistani children to malnutrition and no education, and we are therefore condemn condemning them to not have the ability to develop the comfort with modernity that's required for us to explore that aspect of humanity and spirituality that we need them to in order for us to build a coherent, harmonious, with it, secure and prosperous society. And the saddest uh, aspect as a Pakistani, of course the saddest aspect right now is the victims in, in this, just like in any injustice, the victims in this uh, attack in Orlando, that obviously is the first and foremost concern and their families and, and their loved ones. But beyond that, sitting in Islamabad and looking at this happen, the blowback this is going to cause in terms of the uh, in terms of the U.S. election and the counter reaction to that that is going to emerge uh, over here, the see we told you so kind of you know, narrative that's going to build up. We are going to grow further and further away and, and apart from, from other places in the world and within, within ourselves as, as, a, as a society here in Pakistan. And uh, I think that that is tragic and, and deeply upsetting. I agree. I think um, we'll come to a close and uh, our 
deepest uh, condolences and sympathies to all the families of uh, all the people who've died and uh, hoping that, you know, I'm sure Orlando as a city is going to be severely, severely impacted by this. Uh, a lot of people will know people who've died and I'm hoping that, you know, we don't have to see a day like this again. So, Musharraf, um, we'll just sign off. Absolutely. Thank you, as always, uh, Fasi. Uh, thanks, listeners. And uh, see you soon. Inshallah. Khudafiz, everyone.